happy Father's Day. You know, 1 Corinthians uh, 16 has this wonderful passage that says, uh, Be watchful. This is 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Act like men. As a father, I suppose that's what we want to do, is we want to act like men. We want to be, be men. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, what does it mean to act like a man? Well, here it says, be strong. You know, the idea is to be courageous. Certainly, that is something that all men ought to be, and um, as a father, you should be courageous. It's going to take courage to be a godly father, especially in our day and age. Uh, But then verse 14 says this, let all that you do be done in love. Sometimes we don't think so much about that as fathers, and I think uh, if there's anything that really is maybe the highest thing that we ought to be as fathers, it is uh, men that, that love. And so, you know, you have that great passage in 1 Corinthians 13, that love uh, text, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insult on its own way, insist on its own way, excuse me, it, does, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Paul even says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is what? Is love. Love is the highest thing a father can do. It's the highest thing a father can be, is a loving man, and that is no more better seen than in our Heavenly Father. God is love. And so if there's anything I might say, I might add to the conversation about Father's Day, it's just that that we might act like men and we might love each other and love our families um, and do everything we can to, to love this world by telling others about our Father who is um, full of love for us. So with that, we'll transition to our passage in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. The setting was the temple treasury, John chapter 8. To find this area, that is the temple treasury, you would have to travel through the court of Gentiles and through the court of Israel. You would then ascend a flight of steps and proceed through one of the gates to enter into this inner courtyard uh, in the front area of the temple. The gate beautiful was that central gate that you would walk through, but there were other gates as well there in the temple area. That, that central area was where the sacrifices were, were made. We wouldn't have been able to enter into that area, of course. We could stand just before it, though, in what they called the court of women. This is where the temple treasury was found. And so this temple area was kind of broken up by uh, gender and uh, ethnicity. If you were a Gentile, you could go so far. And then if you were a male or female Israelite, you could go so far. And then if you were a female Israelite, you could go so far. And then if you were a a male Israelite, you could even go further. Kind of how that all was set up in the temple. Around this courtyard in the court of women where the treasury was, you would find a colonnade or a porch. And it was there that you'd find 13 shofar chests. The shofar chests were 
treasure chest. They were offering boxes, and they had a shofar, a ram's horn, that kind of came out of the, the, the treasure chest or the, the offering box where you would put your money. If you had the privilege of standing in this courtyard, this court area, during the Feast of Tabernacles, you would see four candelabras lit, you know, flying up into the sky 75 feet high. At the outset of this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a ceremony in which these four candelabras were lit. If we can imagine what nightlife would have been like in antiquity, would it have, would it, what it would have been like to only have light at night by candlelight or by an oil lamp, we're not surprised to read of these towering candelabras that they sent such a blaze through, of light through Jerusalem that every courtyard in the city was lit up. Jesus, of course, has a way of connecting or had a way of connecting his teaching to the world around him. He did that often. Recall the words from a previous study. You remember this. If anyone thirsts, Jesus said, let him come to me and drink. Jesus spoke those words during the ceremony of water pouring, which we studied some weeks back. By pairing those words with the ceremony, Jesus was saying that he was the fulfillment of that ceremony. Isaiah 12.3 says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And Jesus is saying, I am the well of salvation which to draw water. Come to me and drink. And he says, you will never thirst again. Well, in a similar manner, Jesus claims to be a kind of fulfillment of the blaze of light sent forth from those towering candelabras. Barclay, put it this way, William Barclay, he says, Jesus is saying, you have seen the blaze of the temple illuminating, piercing the darkness of the night. I am the light of the world. And for the man who follows me, there, there will be light, not only for one exciting night, but for all the pathway of his life. The light of the temple is a brilliant light, but in the end it flickers and it dies. I am to mend the light which, which lasts forever and ever. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll read John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. And we'll see Jesus talk about being this light of the world. John 8, verses 12 through 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury 
as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 21. So he, just, so he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he, was been, that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you. This morning in this passage, we're going to see three realities that urge us to follow the light. Three realities that urge us to follow the light. This theme of light is not a new one. We've encountered it already in the Gospel of John. In fact, at the very beginning of the Gospel, almost the first verse, John chapter 1, verse 4, we are introduced to the theme of light. John writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That, of course, is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which give light, gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. We also were encountered the light in John chapter 3. When Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 18, we read, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people, it says, love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest the works should be, their works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true, John tells us, comes to the light. If there's anything new here in John chapter 8 that we just read, it is the explicit claim that Jesus says that He is the light of the world. And this is the first reality that urges us to follow the light. It's the light's claim. The light's claim. If this theme of the light shows up in the Gospel of John, it's because it's a metaphor that's steeped in Jewish and Old Testament allusions. It was the glory or the light of God's presence that led Israel into the promised land. It was His light that gave them protection against their enemies. 
The nation sang these words from Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. God's word, Psalm 119, 105 tells us, is the light that guides the path of his people. Listen to Psalm 44, verse 3. For not by their own sword did they win the land, this is Israel, nor did their own arm save them, but God's right hand and his arm and the light of his face delivered them. It was the light of Yahweh's face that defeated his enemies. Isaiah tells us that Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles, and he tells us in in the future, Yahweh will be the light for his people. Isaiah 60, verses 19 through 22. And we know that Jesus is making a claim, making the claim of being this divine light, because he says, I am the light of the world. This is the second I am statement that we have encountered in the Gospel of John. This is that special phrase that Jesus uses and only John records that speaks of the deity of Christ. I am the light of the world. In one sentence then, with this sentence, Jesus is claiming to be the Shekinah glory of God, God's very dwelling place. He's saying that he's the one that guided Israel through the wilderness. He's saying it was him that enveloped the tabernacle. In the last chapter of the Old Testament, in almost the last verse of the Old Testament, we read this statement concerning Messiah in Malachi 4.2. The son of righteousness, not S-O-N, but S-U-N, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Remember, Zechariah's prophecy John the Baptist's father, remember his prophecy. He says this in Luke 1, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus is the son of righteousness. He is the sunrise that gives light to all. He is the light of the world, as he claims here. So then, how does this light urge us to follow? As I said, these are realities that urge us to follow. How exactly does the light urge us to follow? Well, Jesus does say that whoever follows will not walk in darkness. What's the darkest place that you've ever been? What's the darkest place that you can imagine? I'm sure you've needed a flashlight many times in your life before the cell phone We often needed a flashlight, now we have one in our back pocket. When you find yourself in the dark, how do you respond? How do do your movements change? Your movements are slowed. You're careful. You're unsure. You're anxious. You're scared. You might trip over something. We know, in addition, we know that the Bible uses this word walk, walk in darkness, We know the Bible uses this word walk to capture the idea of a a manner of life. How is your walk? That's what we're saying. It's, It's a manner of life, the way that we're walking. The Apostle Paul says we are to not walk in the futility of our minds, but we are to walk as children of light. Paul says the world takes part in the unfruitful works of darkness. The book of Proverbs tells us that 
those who forsake the path of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness. And the way of the wicked is like deep darkness, Proverbs 4.19. They do not know over what they stumble. And this darkness is so deep, so black, you might say, that it ensnares us. We're enveloped in the darkness. MacArthur says, like a dying man who cherishes his deadly disease, they cherish the sin that produces spiritual and eternal death. We cherish it. John 3.19, and this is the judgment, we just read it. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people, people, that's everyone, loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. It's this sin-darkened world that Jesus stepped into and declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, how does the light urge us to follow? Well, it says, here I am. It says, follow me. I've set a path before you. Now walk with confidence because you can see. Open your eyes. In Acts 26, when the Apostle Paul was commissioned by our Lord, he recounts his testimony and he talks about when the Lord commissioned him to do ministry. He says this, God appointed him to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was called to go to the world and spread the message of Jesus, that men and women and people would turn from the darkness to light. They would turn from Satan, that they would receive the forgiveness of sins, that they would be sanctified, transformed into his image. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us where? To the kingdom of His beloved Son. Lenski, he writes, The light does all the drawing to itself, not we. It makes us follow. That's what light does. Only willful resistance of the most unreasonable and unacceptable perversion breaks away from that drawing and chooses the deadly darkness instead of the light. To follow Jesus is to believe and to trust Him. How can anyone trust the darkness? He must mistrust and flee from it when the light shines over Him. How can anyone mistrust and flee from the light when it shines over Him? If we're in a dark room and light appears, what do we do? We immediately gravitate towards it. We would never flee from that light, a light that gives us direction, gives us confidence to walk, helps us to not stumble along the path. How can it help, he continues, but draw, hold, and fill us? While to follow means to believe and to trust, it means that in its fullness. Notice he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have He will have the light of life. That's that's the sense of it. He will take ownership of it. He will wrap his arms around it. 
in the fullest sense, he will have the light of life. It's the very nature of light, end quote. It's the very nature of light that urges us to follow. That's what light does. Jesus' words, they, they thunder forth. They declare, open your eyes. Turn from the darkness. Follow the path that leads to forgiveness. Follow the path, church, that leads to joy. The Bible gives us many word pictures of following to follow. There are many word pictures used in the Bible. You have the soldier that follows his captain. You have the slave that follows his master. You have the man with questions who follows his counselor. You have the citizen who follows the law or the king. You, the student who follows his teacher. The one who follows the light is all of this and more. The Christian is the soldier whose captain is Christ. The slave whose master is Christ. The counselor for the man with questions is Christ. The Christian is the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's accepted the law of Christ. He submits to the rulership of Christ. The Christian is the student whose teacher is Christ. William Barclay writes, To be a follower of Christ is to give oneself body and soul into the obedience of the master. To enter upon that following is to walk in the light. When we walk alone, we are bound to stumble and grope. For so many of life's problems are beyond our solution, and if we try to settle them ourselves, we are bound to go wrong. When we walk alone, we are bound to take the wrong way because we have no secure map of life. We need the heavenly wisdom to walk the earthly way. The man who has a sure guide and an accurate map is the man who is bound to come in safely in his journey's end. Jesus Christ is that guide. He alone possesses the map to life. To follow him is to walk in safety through life and afterwards to enter into his glory. Amen. Here then is the first reality that urges us to follow the light, the light's claim. Now this metaphor of light is carefully chosen by our Lord. It's a fitting metaphor, of course, while standing under four towering candelabras. But it's also a fitting metaphor for God, light, because it has a, a powerful self-testimony. Light says, like nothing else, I am here. Does it not? It's there. You can't argue with it. Morris writes, light establishes its claim, and it does so not by arguments, but just by shining. Light must always be accepted by itself. And in fact, if we don't accept it, what do we declare of ourselves? We say, we're essentially saying we're blind because we don't see it. We can't see it. So, there are blind ones in this text. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, their objection is in line with the principles of the Old Testament. For them, it's less about what's true or false. That's not really what, what's at issue for them. Of course, all the miracles that Jesus have, has done or have done, and still they can't see him. 
So they're not concerned about that. What they're concerned about is the legal worth of his claim. That's what they're focused on. They're saying that, that his claim is not valid because it does not meet the necessary qualification of the law, namely having two witnesses. The evidence is not sufficient to establish the claim, is what they're saying. Now, Jesus answers in verses 14 through 19, and his answer is, is hard to understand. It's complex, you might say. It's enigmatic, it's abstract, it's hard to understand, but we'll try to make sense of it. Verse 14, Jesus says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. First, here, Jesus has, he's arguing that he has a complete knowledge of his origin. They have an incomplete knowledge of his origin. I know where I come from. You don't know where I come from. They have no right to question his testimony because they're unaware of his irrefutable origin. And since they don't know his origin, they don't know where he's going. They, they don't have knowledge of his mission. They don't know his origin. They don't know where he's going. Where he's going. Second, he says in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Their objection is according to the flesh. It's by human standards. It's worldly, you might say. The judgment these men have come to concerning Jesus is of the flesh. It doesn't take into account this heavenly origin that he speaks of, which they can't see. They don't understand. They won't accept it. Recall what Jesus said in John 7, 24. We already visited a, a similar principle. Jesus said, do not judge by appearances, you remember, but judge with right judgment. So here he says again, this is a, a judgment by human standards. And he adds this as well, I judge no one, he says, which might mean that I don't judge in that way. I don't judge the way you do by human standards. He might be saying that. We also recall what Jesus said in John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Which is to say, Jesus' first mission wasn't about, his first coming wasn't about judgment. Right? He came in his first advent to save, to save and to seek the lost. That's why he came. He will come again for judgment. And so he says, I judge no one. However, Verse 16, he says, Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not alone who judge, for it is not I alone, excuse me, who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Jesus' presence, you might say, even though he's not actively judging, his very presence comes as a judgment. John three nineteen. We already read it. This is the judgment that light came into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. His very presence in that moment and they're not accepting him is the judgment. It says, you don't know the Father because you don't accept me. And so Jesus might not actively judge, but what we think about him is a judgment. It's that weighty, it's that serious. 
Furthermore, he adds there in verse 16 that he's no, he's no solitary figure, and that's kind of a theme that goes through this whole section here, is that the Father is with him. He's not alone, which then gets at their question directly in verses 17 and 18. He, he addresses the, the objection from the law squarely, and he says, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And so there are, in fact, two witnesses. I bear witness, and the Father bears witness. Now, once these men hear the word Father, they don't think of the Heavenly Father. They're thinking no further than Jesus' earthly Father. At least that's how I see this in verse 19. Then they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? which I think is an attempt to insult him, which they do again in the same chapter in verse uh, 41, which we'll see next week. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, "We, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And so they're, they're just trying to insult him. They're trying to say that his birth and his coming is illegitimate. Where is your father? Of course, Jesus pays them no mind. He says in verse 19 again, you, ni- you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. As it turns out, their inquiry proves that they don't know the father. They question the witness of Jesus, but as it turns out, they can't hear the father's witness. They don't know Jesus. These men prided themselves on the knowledge of God, yet they had no knowledge of Him. Remember Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You see, there are not many ways to the Father. There is only one pathway to the Father. And that is through the person of Jesus Christ. And these men, they they can't know the Father because they haven't accepted Jesus. And so there's the judgment. They have not accepted the light. The light is standing there, shining forth, and they've declared themselves blind because they will not accept the light. In the next section, in verses 21 through 27... Jesus revisits something that he said earlier in John 7, verses 33 and 34. He said this earlier, I will be with you a little longer, he said. This is at John 7, 34. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus adds something here that's striking in verses 21 and 22. 21, he says, I am going away, it's very similar, and you will seek me, but he says here, and you will die in your sins. That's the new part. Where I am going, you cannot come. The universe knows no greater disaster than that a man would die in his sins. To die under the curse of sin results in eternal separation from the Father. It is a breathtaking statement to say, you will seek after me. You will not find me. 
you will die in your sin. What tragedy. It's an unspeakable horror. Therefore, in this section, we'll call this section, the light's chasm. The light's chasm. The pronouns in this section are emphatic. Jesus is very direct. I am going away. You will seek me. Where I am going, you cannot come. You are from below. I am from above. You are of the world. I am not of the world. Jesus is very emphatic in these verses. He expresses the light's chasm with this contrast. Jesus is from above. They are from the world. He is heavenly. They are earthly. Jesus came from heaven into the world. We know that. He was sent by God into the world. He is not of the world. On the other hand, his opponents are of the world. The world is all that is human as opposed to all that is divine. And yet, we know that this is our Father's world, that we have a Creator that made this world. Different as the world is, from heaven human as one is and divine as the other is, there is yet, Barclay says, no unbreachable gulf between the two. There is a chasm, yet there is a bridge, you might say. Although there is a chasm between the two, between light and dark, between heaven and earth, John tells us, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, his unique son, that whoever believes shall never perish but have eternal life. However different the world is from the divine, God has not abandoned the world. If there's anything true about man, it's that he's not what he was meant to be. We know that if we believe the Bible, we've read the Bible, the opening chapters at least. It's because we have become, well, we have become because of sin of this world. We weren't meant to be that way. Something went wrong, and that something is sin. It is sin which separated the world from God. It is sin which blinds the world to God. How then does the light's chasm urge us to follow? Well, it cries out for belief. Look at verse 24. I told you, Jesus says, that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Jesus is saying the chasm between the heavenly and the earth, earthly can be traversed. For all that has gone wrong in this world, God has sent a cure. Lenski says the light opens the door of life in the wall of sin. Barclay says it's the cure for man's disease. I say it's the bridge over the chasm between this world and the next. However you say it, church, this verse is pure gospel. It is pure gospel truth. And the word unless tells us that belief is our only hope of escape. It's a conditional statement. A condition has to be met for it to be true. What is that condition? Unless you believe that I am He, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That condition has to be met. Belief. 
I read about a man, the man who developed insulin for the treatment of diabetes. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Gordon Ailes or Alice. Tragically, he died of that very disease. Those closest to him came to one of two conclusions. Either he didn't know he had the disease, or he purposely neglected the use of the remedy. In the same way, we can know Jesus. We can pay him mind. We can acknowledge that he was real. We can consider his teachings as true and helpful. We can do all of this and not receive the cure. It's like those who drop their kids off at church and go home. They have some kind of value for Christ. They drop their kids off. They can see the door of life in the wall of sin. They can see the cure for man's disease. They can see the bridge over the chasm between this world and the next. Yet, they're unwilling to cross. They won't drive across. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, the divine name. That's what this is here. When God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery, he asked, what shall I say to them? You remember this from Exodus chapter 3. God answered, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Jesus isn't saying, unless you believe I'm a really important dude, you'll die in your sins. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is, unless you believe that I am the eternal God, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, unless you believe all of that, you will die in your sins. Kent Hughes, he writes, what we think of Christ is of paramount importance. We can think he is the greatest of teachers. We can think that he is sinless. We can dwell upon his perfection. We can believe he is brave and kind and honest and compassionate and truthful and all these things more. We can idolize him. We can pray to him. But that is not enough, he says. Well, then what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? I like how Tozer illustrates this. A father and his nine-year-old son have a close and trusting relationship. The father reminds his boy that in a month he'll be observing his 10th birthday. Son, he begins, I know that you want a bicycle. I'm going to order a brand new red and white bicycle, and it will be here in time for you to begin riding it on the moment, morning of your birthday. It will be your very own bicycle. You will be the owner, he says. Is that excited boy going to wait a month before he tells his friends that he's the owner of a shiny new bicycle? Oh, no. He's going to run out immediately to give the great news to his friends. He's full of faith. He's full of expectancy. He already knows within himself the pride of ownership. His faith has given substance to his boyish hope. His faith has given a reality to the bicycle that he has not even seen. He's not reporting to his friends an imaginary projection in his mind. He has his father's word. He's able to speak with assurance. Believe it or not, I own one of the most beautiful bicycles in the whole world. The boy knows he can trust the character of his father. His faith is not in the factory that makes the bicycle. 
It rests in the character and the ability of his father to keep the promise he has made. But of course, there's always a kid in the neighborhood, a little friend in the neighborhood who remains cynical and unbelieving. Don't give me that dreamy line about having a bicycle, the friend insists, with some belligerence. Who is going to believe your story? I don't see any shiny new bicycle in your front yard. For an answer, the boy with faith, the boy who already knows the delight of anticipation, simply smiles smiles a knowing smile and says, just give me till my birthday, and when you see me riding my bike past your house, you will wish my father was your father too. Now that's what it means to believe. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So we've seen the light's claim. We've seen the light's chasm. Finally, there's a third reality that urges us to follow the light. It's the light's culmination. The light's culmination. Enveloped in darkness, the Pharisees question, verse 25, who are you? Who are you? The pronoun is emphatic. It's in the Greek something like, you? Who are you saying so much to us? Who are you to tell us that we're going to die in our sins? The response that Jesus offers is in line with his previous arguments. Verse 25, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to you to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. If there's anything new here, it's this next verse. Jesus said to them, verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know, again, that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. This expression, lifted up, it is a curious one. It's an expression we've read before. You remember John three fourteen. As it, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Notice Jesus says in verse 28, when you, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. We know that Jesus is speaking of the cross. That's clear. And he says that these men... Those men will do the lifting. They'll lift him up. They will be killing him. This phrase, lifted up, is is not one commonly used of crucifixion. It's very unique to John, for John to use this word. It's not one that you'd find other Greek writers in John's day using to talk about crucifixion. And so there's probably a double meaning here. Of course, the nature of crucifixion involves a lifting up. We understand that. You have to be lifted up to be crucified. But the word carries the meaning of to exalt, to raise to a high place, to put something where it belongs, something that that reflects its value and its worth, to put it on the top shelf. Thus, to crucify the Son is to lift up Jesus, to lift him up to his Father's presence to put him where he belongs, to give him the honor that is due him. And 
It's the cross that communicates that. It's not the throne. It's the cross. The cross is what communicates where Jesus belongs, his worth, his value. When he is lifted up, when he is exalted, then you will know that I am he. Then you will know, ego and me, that I am who I am, Yahweh. Isn't this what Paul told the Philippians? Remember that great passage? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Speaking of Jesus' death, and then what does he say? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every name should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's an amazing passage at the end of Matthew. It talks about the crucifixion, crucifixion Matthew 27, verses 51 and 54. It's, it's a perplexing passage. It says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is, of course, at the crucifixion. The temple was torn in two, the, the curtain access to the temple is opened from top to bottom and the the earth shook and the rocks were split the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many i love this part most especially when the centurion the man who actually put Jesus on this cross on this cross and crucified did the work of, did did the work of crucifixion when this man and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. It was that moment on the cross that they realized, I am He. We think of the cross, we think of the atonement. We think of the payment for sin. We think of expiation and redemption. All those things are good. We ought to think of those things. But we sometimes don't think of the cross as a form of revelation. There's a revelatory aspect of the cross. It declares something. It declares that Jesus was who he said he was. That he was really the Son of God, the true light that was sent into the world. So, how does the light's culmination urge us to follow? Well, if we understand the triumph of our God, the pinnacle of His exaltation was His death for us, friends, what else would we do but follow Him? At what point did Christ declare, it is finished? When did he say that? The birth? The ascension? The throne room? No. He said it is finished on the cross. Where the world saw defeat, Jesus declares the cross as the gate of triumph and the portal of victory. The prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he captures this thought in a way that he could only do it. Speaking from the the perspective of Jesus, he says, 
Just when mine eye is swimming with the last tear, and when my heart is palpitating with its last pang, just when my body is rent with its last trill of anguish, sound of anguish, when mine eye shall see the head, then, he says, mine eye shall see the head of the serpent broken. It shall see hell's towers dismantled and its castle fallen. Mine eye shall see my seed eternally saved. I shall behold the ransom coming from their prison houses. In that last moment of my doom, when my mouth is just preparing for its last cry, it is finished. I shall behold the year of my redeemed come. I shall shout my triumph in the delivery of my beloved. And I shall see then the world, mine own earth, conquered. And usurpers all dethroned. And I shall behold in vision the glories of the latter days. When I shall sit upon the throne of my father David and judge the earth. Attended with the pomp of angels and the shouts of my beloved. End quote. Jesus says then, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Three realities that urge us to follow the light. Are you following the light? The light's claim, the light's claim urges us to follow him. Why? Well, because without him, church, we're lost in darkness. The light's chasm urges us to follow him. Why? Well, because between this world and the next, there's a chasm, and he is the bridge, the only way to cross that chasm. The light's culmination urges us to follow him. Why? Because it reveals the very heart of our God. The culmination, the highest thing, his highest achievement, his crowning achievement is his death. And so we ought to follow him. Amen.